Thanks, Mike. Morning, everyone. Um, let me echo the words of Pastor David that um, the carols night was a fantastic night of just sharing together and of community and connecting with people and was a great night all around. Um, so thank you again to those who organised it. Thank you to those who participated in it. And let's continue to pray that God achieves his purpose. Perhaps you're here this morning and you were at our carols last Sunday night and this might be the very first time you're part of our church. Then we're glad that you're here with us this morning. And if so, then we trust you've got a welcome pack on the way in. And uh, after the service, we normally have morning tea, and so we invite you to come and share and participate with us in that. Next Sunday, as Pastor David said, is also Sunday night is going to be a Thanksgiving service, so I thought I'd talk about Thanksgiving and giving thanks and what the Bible teaches about, at least part of it, in the morning service. So we'll talk about perhaps making the last Sunday of our year like a Thanksgiving time of looking back and what can we give thanks God for. So I'll teach that in the morning and then we'll share that at night and we might even do a little bit of sharing of it in the morning in some personal or individual ways. Um, last thing I wanted to say was that on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day services, um, Pastor David's going to lead and teach at our Christmas Eve service, so pray for him. Uh, Rhonda and I will be at the airport. Our daughter and her husband arrives from... Uh, London at 7.30 Christmas Eve and so we're going to pick them up we have to take two cars that's how much luggage my daughter brings <laughs> and the presents of course um, and then Christmas Day is going to be a normal regular Christmas Day service at 8.30 and what we normally do at Christmas Day as we have done um, I've been doing it for years and I'm sure others have done it as well and we've done it every year I've been here is that we invite the kids to bring one gift to open a gift before they come. Many kids get up at strange hours and open their presents. Some families, they open all the presents straight away. Other families don't. We don't open any of our presents until after the service. And then we go home and have morning tea together and then we sit around in a big circle and we spend four or five hours opening presents. No, that's not true. Half an hour or whatever it takes. And many of others do the same sort of thing. But if you're a young couple, young family... Um, then let me encourage you to allow the kids to open one present and then depending on what it is, if you're happy for them to bring it, to encourage the kids to bring it and then we try to get the kids out the front and they show everybody what they got and we all rejoice together and inquisitive together and there are new toys coming out every year and I never cease to be surprised by some of the things kids get. And then I'll have a box of lollies, a box of, I'll have both chocolates and soft lollies with me so that kids can come and, and get one of those. And then, as I've done in other days, other Christmases, is the, not every kid will come out the front, will they? Because some of them are shy publicly, and so I'll go to them. I'll find my way eventually, and I'll stand at the back somewhere. So every child will get something on Christmas Day, something to eat, something to enjoy. And as is the custom, I'm quite sure of the habit in previous years, some of the kids will get more than one thing. They'll have multiple dips into the lolly barrel as long with you, the mums and dads as well, and the grandparents, you're more than welcome to have something as well. We have, uh, this morning, we come to the end of a, a very short three-week series where we were focus focusing upon, in the month of December, the names of Jesus, the names, the various names. And so the pastors had a conversation about it, and we decided that on the first Sunday in Advent, we would do the name Emmanuel. Pastor David Daniels did that in Isaiah 7. That name again will reappear this morning. Last Sunday, second Sunday, uh, Pastor David Butterfield spoke about Isaiah 9. Wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That was last Sunday. And so this morning, 
I thought it would be appropriate if I focused upon the ultimate name of the Messiah, Jesus. And of course in this passage there are two names, so we'll allude quickly to, to both of them, but focus, I hope, on his main name, Jesus, the reason for the season. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd like to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, or in your electronic devices to turn them on, or you can turn your eyes to the screen where the scriptures will be displayed for you. This is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is Matthew's account, um, sort of background account, to the birth of Jesus from Joseph's perspective. Verse 18 says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband was faithful to the law, or a righteous man, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son... And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him took Mary home as his wife. But he didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We pray that that which we have just read and that which we are about to hear might be the instruments in your hand this morning to achieve your purposes. Take your words, Lord, and work in us to help us to know, to follow, and to serve the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. There are over 700 names given, titles and names given to the person of the Messiah. Over 700. There's a book that I have at home um, by a scholar called Elmer Towns. And he's collated those and put them in all different sorts of combinations and gives you a complete listing of those names, over 700. Many of you are parents. One of the joys and privileges we have as parents is that when we have children, with God's blessing, we get to pick the name. It's a joy, isn't it? Not many parents that I'm aware of don't put a lot of thought into that. Some wrestle with it. Some rehearse it, some sound it, some bounce it off, some go by the popular lists of what's on or what's not on or what's favourable and some deliberately go for um, um, either old um, classic names and others go for modern contemporary names and some go for the way out weird names way out there. Some people think about the combination of the letters, 
think I've told you one other time. I had an associate pastor in a previous church and in another lifetime. His surname was Dorrington. And he had a little girl, his first daughter, first child. And he called her Maddie, Madeline. Her middle name was Anne. M-A-D. I thought you didn't think about that, did you? <laughs> Madeline's a pretty name and she's a pretty kid. Um, so we all do the things. Most of us certainly keep it a secret until the child is actually born. Do you know what your name means? Ever tried to find out? Is it significant? Does it have some sort of history or family background to it? My dad's name is Evan. Evan Gain is his middle name. Evans, Evan Evans. I go to the nursing home where he is now, and he's been there for a couple of years, and he, for some reason in recent years, has returned to that name. He never used that name all my life. Everybody in town knows my dad by another name. They call him Pat, Patrick. And that, in fact, is his third name. Evan Gain Patrick Evans, Catholic background. So everybody called him Pat. But in recent years, he's wanted to return to using his actual name, Evan. And I thought it was strange. It's a decided lack of creativity, don't you think? Evan Evans. But in fact, the name has been in our family, for my mum said, over 100 years. And that's what they were going to call me. And she said over her dead body. <laughs> Praise God for mothers. When we went to England, and some of you have been to England, when you go on tour guides and things, there's an organisation which is very popular and very widely known throughout the United Kingdom, Evan Evans Tours. How about that? Probably Welsh by background or something like that, but it's a very common combination in the United Kingdom. Just sounds weird to our Aussie ears. Anyway, names and what do they mean and the significance of them. Well, in this passage and for this morning's topic, God chose the name of his son. God sent an angel to Mary and said, you will call him Jesus. God sent an angel to Joseph and said to him, when you go down there, make sure they know his name is going to be Jesus. Because the meaning of the name of Jesus, while it's a very easy word to say, is a, a word which is full of meaning. His name is meaningful. And its literal meaning is what we'll certainly look at this morning, um, is one that we are to embrace. And in fact, it's what the church has embraced down through the millennia, the centuries, and continues to embrace because it defines who he is and what he does. His very name, Jesus gives us a clue. Let's have a quick look at this passage. I want to work my way through it. I want to make certain comments as I go and I have to go pretty quickly because I want to get to the bit where we're going to focus about the person of Jesus. So just to go through the first part of the story, it falls into three parts. Matthew 1, 18 to 25 falls into three paragraphs. First paragraph, verses 18 to 20. It's the background, the introduction to how this, is, this birth is about to come about. Matthew tells us deliberately that it's his mother, Mary, because you know that Joseph is not his father, but Mary is his mother. When she was legally engaged, betrothed, promised, contracted, in fact, to Joseph, 
It's a different culture and it's a different way of doing things. But back in those times, Mary at the age of 12, 13 or 14, her marriage relationship with Joseph would have been arranged by her parents who would have met with his parents and they would have signed a document before witnesses. And in the exchange of those documents and those witnesses where Mary was promised to Joseph, Joseph would have also received a sum of money from Mary's father, a dowry. You're taking my daughter. You're going to need some expenses to look after her. Here you go. He received financial support. They were the good old days, weren't they? So she's in at that point, in that context of the relationship, before they are married, before the official, a second and also a public ceremony, but before that, but after the betrothal, it was discovered that she was pregnant. And people knew back then, like they know now, how girls get pregnant. And Matthew tells us twice, uh, this is supernatural. This is God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in in her. But Joseph, her fiancé, her husband, as he technically would have been called, legally called at that point, though not married because he's betrothed, they took the title husband and wife. The Bible says that he was a man who was faithful to the law. In other versions, and I prefer to translate it, he was a righteous man. He was a man who was God-orientated, God-honoring, and he sought to be obedient and righteous before God. And that's worth noting because this tells us something about what it means to be righteous. He didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. Remember the contract that he signed where he received the money? She's now pregnant. Only one thing could be concluded. She has been unfaithful to him. She is an adulteress, quote, is the term that would have been used. And so he had a choice. He could divorce her, end that contract quietly between, again, a couple of witnesses. But if he does that quietly, he hands the money back. He doesn't get to keep it. But if he does it publicly... Not only will the truth come out, not only will she be shamed and embarrassed, he gets to keep the money because he's the innocent one, publicly known. So here is Joseph, a righteous man, hurt, disturbed, troubled, wrestling. And he doesn't want to disgrace her publicly. Decides that he'll hand the money back, that he'll lose that, but he'll do it quietly passage says that after he considered this he's wrestling with it he obviously cared about her an angel of the lord appeared to him in a dream god has access to our dreams this implies doesn't it and the angel comes and says to him joseph son of david don't be afraid what you're thinking is not correct mary is pregnant but it's not she hasn't been unfaithful god the holy spirit has done something supernatural in her and she's going to give birth to a little boy and your job is that you are to give him the name Jesus, that's your job. Take her home as your wife. Have that public, second public ceremony. Sign the wedding contracts. Take her home, be husband and wife, and call him Jesus. Four things to note very quickly before we move on. Number one, Jesus was conceived supernaturally. Passage says that very clearly. But born naturally. While we call it the virgin birth, 
technically it's the virginal conception and she certainly was a virgin when she gave birth number two during this season of the year this passage and Luke passages are read and rehearsed and repeated and so they should be we celebrate yet again the truth that God himself has become incarnate he's become in flesh that God entered space-time history that he became one of us to reveal himself he's not the distant aloof unknowable God he's the present visible knowable God in the person of Jesus and he's the one who took the initiative to do that he had demonstrated his love for us this passage also says to us that the Holy Spirit is the one who brings about the life of Jesus within a person think about that it's the Holy Spirit who brings about the life of the person of Jesus within us as he did it physically with Mary so he does it with us spiritually that's the focus for this year God is at work and we are to join him in his work it's God initiating God going before into all of our relationships and to all of our contexts, it's God who must initiate. It's God who must do the work. It's God who has to do something in my dad's life. It's beyond the possibilities of human reason or human ability to persuade. God must soften hearts, open minds, allow the truth of his word to penetrate. God initiates. God saves. But this passage also says some wonderful things about Joseph. And just to note quickly... I'm not sure what I want to derive from this theologically or doctrinally, but Joseph never says a word. Maybe men should never speak. But Joseph is a man, though he is silent, the passage says that he obeys promptly, specifically. Every time we read about Joseph, he is one who does exactly that. He is obedient. Whatever the Lord says to him to do, he does it incredible example and then if you reflect upon it he is also a man who is righteous sought to honor God in his life and his righteousness did not make him judgmental did not make him harsh and in fact made him sensitive to the needs of his fiance of his future wife the needs of this betrothed betrothed one he was sensitive towards her his righteousness made him sensitive to others that's worth noting. So he's a man who is sensitive to God's word and is obedient to it. And in obedience to God, he is also sensitive, gentle towards others. Matthew will teach us that's what righteousness means as we follow the Lord Jesus. He gives us an illusion right here in the beginning. That's the first paragraph. Second paragraph begins at verse 21 and goes down to verse 23 that's where the angel is speaking and please note the two names that the angel gives to jo- well mentions to joseph she'll give birth to a son you are to give him the name firstly jesus why because he will save his people from their sins I'll come back to that one all this took place to fulfill what the lord said through the prophet note this in passing god keeps his word what god said he would do he does do right here this to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. Please note also, if you think about it, Matthew is fully aware, and he does it about a dozen times, there is a combination between the word of God 
and the word of the prophets, the divine and the human, brought together. That which we have in the scriptures, the divine and the human, is that which we have in the person of Jesus, divine and human. That's Matthew's point, I think. All this took place to fulfill what was said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they... Who are they? People. And people will call him Emmanuel. Nobody ever does, do they? There's no record of anybody saying Emmanuel. But there is abundant evidence of God's people calling him God and God with us. They will call him God with us. And there is Joseph's full obedience. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Took Mary home as his wife. Second public marriage ceremony. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. I want to talk about the second name before I talk about the first name. I just want to talk quickly about Emmanuel. God with us. Once again, as I've said already, Matthew seems to keep repeating these themes, that God is the one who takes the initiative. He took the initiative for him to become known in the person of Jesus, God with us. The Christianity and the Bible certainly teaches that Jesus, the saviour of the world, is both divine and human. Now, listen and think with me on this. This is crucial, this is important and difficult. Just as we have two natures, just as we have a sinful nature, and if you're a follower of Jesus, we also have a new nature, yet we are one person. So Jesus has two natures, yet he is one person. He has a divine nature, and he has now taken to himself a human nature, but he is one person. He is two what's, divine and human, but one who took the church hundreds of years to come to a clear understanding of how should we express this. And it eventually comes to fruition in a thing called the Chalcedon Creed. That doesn't matter, but you can look it up and you can read it through. It's a very carefully worded articulation. And the formula that they decide upon is that these two natures of the divine and the human in the one person of Jesus, Emmanuel, is that it's two natures without confusion without change to either one, without division and without separation. They are inseparably united in one, perfectly united, but not confused. Follow? Hmm. We need to confess. Orthodox Christianity confesses both. How did he do it? I have no idea. But I do believe, and obviously Orthodox Christians believe, that God is capable of doing it because he's done it which I think, my opinion, and I'm not alone, but my opinion, that's why way back in the beginning when God made us, when God made Adam and Eve, he made us in his image. He made us in his image so that one day he could become one of us. We are unique in creation. No other being or creature is made in his image. We alone are made in his image with whatever you think that means. And now he has become one of us. John chapter 114 says, the word became flesh 
without diminishing his deity. He is fully God. He takes to himself full humanity. He is both God and man, but he is not two people. He is one person. There is one Jesus, one Lord, but he has two natures. And not just for his earthly existence, but forever. He is like it now. Emmanuel. God in Jesus. The above us God of the Old Testament has become the with us God of the New Testament. And not just with us, but one of us. As one preacher once said it, the invisible God has become visible in Jesus. The intangible has become tangible. The unknowable has become knowable in Jesus. He is the exact representation of God. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at the person of Jesus. He is exactly the same. He is the same. He is God. Jesus is God with us. What does that mean? Well, for one thing, it means that we are now invited to have a relationship with this God who is with us. We can have union and communion with him. We are united with Christ in a relationship with him. But there is also another dimension to that union, which is communion, closeness. It is possible for us to be united with Christ, but not to be in communion with him. We can be out of fellowship, out of step with him, in him, in relationship, but out of fellowship with him because of disobedience or because of sin or because of whatever in our life. And his desire for us is not only to be united with him, but to be close with him, to be in communion with him. Some of you this morning, most of you this morning, will be people who have Jesus in your life. And for some of you, you might need to reposition Jesus in your life. Not just united with him, but close and in communion with him, like Joseph, in submission to him, fully obedient to him. Not just obedient to his instructions and will for your life, but also obedient when it comes to issues of sin and personal choices and sanctification, holiness and righteousness and even in our relationships with others, of being gentle, spirit-filled towards others. For those of you who have Jesus in your life, that you've accepted him, you, you know who he is, God and Saviour. He's your Lord and King. He needs to be in the driver's seat. Where is Jesus in your life? Is he in the driver's seat? Well, for some of you, he's not. You're in the driver's seat. You're directing your life. You're making your choices. Well, where is Jesus? Is he in the boot? For some Christians, Jesus is in the boot of their life. They drive to church on Sunday mornings. They open the boot and they take Jesus out and they bring Jesus with them into church and they play Christian for an hour and a half. And then when they finish the service, they go back and they open the boot and they tell him to get back in there. They put the boot down and they drive off and they go live their life. Some people say they're Christians, behave like that. You need to reposition Jesus. For some of you, Jesus is in your life, but he's in the back seat. Or he's in the passenger seat. He's not directing it. He might be giving instructions, but you're the driver. You're making choices. 
you need to reposition him. Emmanuel, God with us, in union and communion, close. Not only close, but he wants to be in control. We need to hand him the control of our life. We need to put him in the driver's seat. And then the question becomes, if Jesus is in the driver's seat of your life, are you a backseat driver? Are you the one saying to him, I don't want to go there? You know, he's driving now. He comes to the roundabout and he goes left. And you say, where are you going? I'm going down this road of forgiveness. I don't want to go there. Well, if he's in control, he will deal with those issues in your life. Or he might come to the roundabout and go a different direction. He might go down the road of generosity. Or he might go down the road of obedience or service or self-denial or whatever it is. He's the driver. He's in control. Some of us need to reposition him for Emmanuel, God with us, God in us, to be experienced, to be enjoyed, to be what he made us to be. That's the second name, Emmanuel. Let's come to the first name and I'll have to be quicker than I wanted to be. You will give him the name Jesus. And technically that's not his name, that's his English name, that's the name we use. That's the name which has become very popular throughout the world today and we can hear it in whatever language it is, Jesus, Jesus, Yesu. Jesus was Jewish, Aramaic or Hebrew. And the name that God gave him would have been the full name, like in English again, but this is an abbreviation, Joshua. God is saviour, God saves Joshua but even that is a a, um, a shortening, an abbreviation the full name is Jehoshua Yehoshua is the full Hebrew name which the Hebrews abbreviated shortly to Jeshua and in Galilee the documents tell us, the evidence that we have the Galileans even sought in Jeshua down to Jeshu all that's interesting and aside, so probably Mary and Joseph called him Yesu, Jeshu. In Greek, becomes Jesus, Jesus. We use his name, Jesus. But either way, with however you pronounce it, the name has the same meaning in all of those contexts. God saves. That's what it literally means. God saves. And the church has latched onto that. Who is he? God. What does he do? Saves. Who he is and what he does. Jesus. Fully God. Fully man. Who comes to save. Not disguised as a human. Not diluting his divinity. One person. Two natures. Fully God who redeems, saves, sets free. That's what he came to do and still desires and is still doing. The passage tells us, the angel says to Matthew, why you are going to give him this name, Jesus. Because he will save who? His people. From what? From their sins. 
Notice that it's he saves his people. He doesn't save the world because there are people in the world who will reject him. There are people in the world who will not follow him. But for those people who bow the knee, who acknowledge him, who invite him to become their Lord and Saviour, who invite him to forgive them, they become part of his people, his nation, his community. That's the interesting thing. This is a singular word, but it's corporate. He will save his people. While he saves us individually, he saves us into a community. That's the point that Matthew is alluding to, and he'll come back and refer to it later. Jesus will build his church. In Matthew 21, he'll talk about, I'll give the gospel to a nation, meaning the new nation, the people of God. He saves his people from what? Not from sinners. Not from political oppression or from military enemies. He will save his people from their sin. Their sins, plural. He pays the penalty for our sin. He removes the power of sin. And one day, when he returns and we are fully redeemed and glorified, he will remove us from the presence of sin, from the consequences of sin. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus saves. Who is he? God saves. Who does he save? His people. From what? Their sins. There is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. Jesus. Jesus is a common name. It's used to identify with all sorts of people. In fact, when Jesus died, and just before Jesus died, when he was before Pilate, there was a choice given to the people that they could release Jesus, the Christ, or there was another person that they could also release, Barabbas. But his full name was Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, the son of Abbas. And of course, you know the story, it's, they take Jesus and crucify him, but this prisoner, this terrorist, this murderer, criminal, is released and let go free. Again, picturing what Jesus does, he takes the place of the guilty for all who want to believe in him. Jesus is a very common name in the ancient world. Still used today, I would think, in South America and Spanish-speaking countries a little bit. But back in Jesus' day, his name, Jesus, Yehoshua, was in the top ten of the Jewish names that the Jews named their people. Historical research and documents show that. But by the time we come to the second century, there is this abrupt and sudden ending to the use of the name Jesus, Joshua both amongst the Jewish people, but also amongst Christians. For the Jewish people, obviously, this name came to be associated with Christianity and with that troublemaker, Jesus of Nazareth. And so they stopped calling their kids Jesus, Joshua. And Christians, of course, stopped calling their boys Jesus or Joshua because of the specialness of the person whose name it was. It's a common name. 
but it's become a very precious and special name. And it is to us, and we sing about it, and we revere it. It's the most commonly used name for the Messiah in the New Testament. And yet I discovered this this week, that it's only used once for somebody to speak to him directly. There is only one person who goes to the carpenter, the Messiah, and who says to him, who calls him Jesus. Everybody, when they talk about him, calls him Jesus, but to him directly, only one person, the thief on the cross, who at the very end of his life turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, can you remember me when you come in your kingdom? It's interesting, isn't it? The only direct reference. But then, of course, Jesus uses this title, this name for himself, Jesus, to identify who he is twice after his resurrection and ascension to heaven. So even in glory, our Lord calls himself Jesus. Does it in Acts 9 with the Apostle Paul? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Jesus uses this identification at the very last book, Revelation 22 and verse 16, when he says through John to the churches, I, Jesus, bear this record. He calls himself that name, this name that God picked for him, for Mary and Joseph to call him, because the name is full of meaning. It is literally true. Jesus means God saves. He is God and he saves. Who does he save? His people. From what? From their sins. It's in his name that we ask for things and he promises that they'll be granted. We pray in the name of Jesus. It's in his name that we are baptised. It's in his name that we serve. It's in his name that we exercise authority over the demonic and over Satan. It's in the name of Jesus. He has all authority. And it's in his name that we find and are to express our unity, that we are together, one in him. When you go down there, you make sure they call him Jesus. Well, this is what I've said. God chose the name of his son. It's an easy name. It's an expansive name. But now it's an exalted name. Jesus Christ was conceived supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, but born naturally, God and human. In Jesus, God enters human history to reveal himself up close and personal and to redeem his people. God is the one who takes the initiative to bring about Christ being alive inside of a person. Hence, we must pray. Joseph, I spoke a little bit about. He was silent, he was obedient, he was righteous. And righteousness meant he was gentle towards others. In the prophets, God's word is encapsulated in human words, God and human. And in this passage, there are two names of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, and Jesus, God saves. In his name, we pray and are baptised, and serve, and are united. For some of us, we might need to invite this Jesus into our life for the forgiveness of our sins. I invite you to do that in a moment.
for some of you, we need to reposition Jesus in our life. We need to get him out of the boot. We need to get him off the back seat. We need to put him in the driver's seat of our life. We need to hand control over to him. We, like Joseph, just need to be obedient, submissive, gentle. And for all of us, we are to reverently submit and to exalt his magnificent name. I'm going to invite you to bow with me for us to do that, and then we'll sing together. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Son, Jesus, our Saviour, who pays the penalty for our sin, who wants to deliver us from the power of sin, and who one day will deliver us from the very presence of sin. Lord, Hear the prayer of those who want to invite you into their life, to receive you, to ask you to forgive them, to ask you to fill them with your spirit and to give them the gift of eternal life. And Lord, hear the prayer of those who want to reposition Jesus in their life, to hand the control of their life back to him, the rightful Lord. Forgive, Lord, those who pretend or play at being Christian and deliver us from such deceptions and delusions and help us, like Joseph, to simply be obedient and submissive and gentle. And Lord Jesus, in all of our lives, be exalted, be glorified, live and reign in us. Show us how we can pray effectively in your name. How we can exercise authority over the demonic in your name. And in your name serve and be united together. Lord Jesus, all honour and glory and power to you, we pray in your name. And everybody said? Amen.